What's up, Ronderings fam? Very excited to have as the final episode of season one, my boy, my kababayan, my Filipino brother, Tony De La Rosa. We met some years ago through our friend Tanisha Pleasant. And since that conversation, these five years ago, we just hit it off. We see the world in very similar ways as Filipinos and grew up though in different ways and very similar ways um, around multiracialism, around lots of black and brown people and an understanding our Filipino-ness, um, our, our lives, um, our journeys are tied to black and brown folks and to all folks. And so I'm just excited for y'all to listen up and hear the wisdom that Tony's about to drop. Peace. What's going on, Ronderings fam? This is the last episode of season one with another brother from another mother. My kababayan, Tony De La Rosa. Tony, what's going on, fam? I'm so glad to be here. I, I've seen so many dope people coming onto this podcast. And uh, to just, uh, one, give back. When, when I'm with you on this podcast, it means I'm giving back to the motherland. So that makes ah. <laughs> me so much happier <laughs> to be on. Yeah, it is so good to have you on, man. I'm trying to remember when we met. We met through just common networks. It might have been either through the TFA or, or Harvard networks. And someone put you on to hit me up when you were talking through career stuff. And that very first conversation, I remember I was in downtown Jersey City. I was like, Tony gets it. And Tony's, he's going to be doing big things. This is a, this is an mf -er I just got to get to know and deepen relationship with. So I'm just very grateful that years ago we decided to to connect and then fast forward, man, we, uh, we both do it in the space. So it is a distinct privilege to have you on the podcast. I just had to shout out because I know who it was who connected me to you, who like was like, you need to know. <laughs> it was a black woman at the time. It was um, right. Tanisha Pleasant. And she was like, you got to meet with. You got to You got to meet with. She was my former boss and at Teach for America when I was okay. just starting leadership. And she was like, you need to be on. Because Ron, she used your title, Talent Shepherd. And I was like, oh, that's the first time I ever heard that term, Talent <laughs> Shepherd. Who is this guy? <laughs> let, me, let me meet Ron. Sometimes biblical references really help <laughs> with branding. I know, I know, right? I know, right? <laughs> I know, right? Uh, shout out to Tanisha Pleasant, who I've talked to a number of times, mm -hmm. and just an amazingly good, good people. So, Tony, we start off all of these episodes with the opportunity for you to share your story. So, what's the story? Yeah. So, where does it begin? Where does it end? Where does it catch up to now? Like, catch up to now? So, I would say, you know, born and raised in San Diego, California, you know, West Coast, best coast, <laughs> you know, in a Filipino, like, Chicano, Mexican community in Oceanside, California. Military base uh, was kind of like the heart of like Filipino immigration for my family network, right? So my mom was working on Camp Pendleton, which is a Marine Corps base. Boom. There goes a lot of us. And like her, her brother like brought a lot of the family over. So a lot of my socialization, we talk about, you know, I'm going to be dropping some like theory and stuff like that because I'm in the PhD realm right now mm -hmm. and I just love theory so much and I love and I want to give uh, homage to that Bobby Haro her work on like cycle of socialization like I'm so socialized by the military experience right now because you know I'm mm. there I'm there for like can't like all my elementary experience is there right I'm moving to Cincinnati because my dad lost his job at uh, one of the companies in the west coast they moved him though to <laughs> middle of nowhere, Cincinnati. And Cincinnati is a like metropolitan urban city, right? But we end up moving to rural at that time, Lebanon. Some people say Lebanon, Ohio. Uh, okay. <laughs> depending on how you okay. say it. And it's rural. And I'm a brown boy in a sea of white there, right? And that's where I got a lot of my education, middle school, high school socializations, and then bringing me back to Cincinnati for undergrad. So that's where everything kind of started. Undergrad, really, like, I, it was a bit the beginnings of me writing spoken word poetry, which was, mm -hmm. like, my critical consciousness, my entering into the critical consciousness. That's, like, where you don't, you know, don't let school get in the way of education, is what people say, right? Yep. 
yeah, my education was happening in these like open mic venues, these bars, these like mm. at nighttime, after hours, right? And then I had poetry and Asian studies, which was like my majors at the time. So that was like coalescing into what I am today as a spoken word poet. I would say researcher in ethnic studies policy meets practice. Obviously, I'm a father, you know, and I try to bring that yeah. to my son and my family. And then just overall cultural broker, which like brings in all those things together. So that is like undergrad going into like the foundations of where I am today. And then I did the whole Teach for America thing because I didn't okay. know it was, but I wanted to teach in the U.S. and bring spoken word to kids because I know how benefit it was for me, beneficial. It just opened my mind. Why wasn't I not learning about Black history or Asian American history in my schooling mm. in K-12? Why mm. did it take me 25 years to learn about this kind of stuff, right? So yeah. I wanted to bring all that ethnic studies plus spoken word, like critical arts in the classroom because my kids were already good at it, right? So I wanted to merge that with the classroom. And I started um, a youth spoken word organization called Indie Pulse at the time. Fun fact, one of the members of that, it wasn't directly under me, but we were in multiple schools. One of the members became the youth national poet laureate, the next Amanda Gorman. What? Number six, I believe. <laughs> That's Gaines. crazy. It's nuts to me. Whoa. That it's hard to track an educator's impact in that lens, right? Mm -hmm. But we know that we cultivated because it was poetry. She, representing Indianapolis, now is at the top level. She's at Harvard too. You know, she's been, she's been sought out. You'll see her do amazing things. She's just starting her game. So that led to that uh, impact. And then from there, I shifted from youth organizing and youth education to more Asian American organizing as I got more into ethnic studies. I would say ethnic studies really opened my brain around, or my mind and my soul around the role, the politic, the praxis around Asian American identity. Now, API, I'm talking about Asian American identity and deeping, deep, more deeply in that Filipino, Filipinex, Filipina American identity. And we'll just start, we'll just leave it at that because I think there's plenty <laughs> to sift out because that is, uh, that's where I am today. Mm. Well, Tony, you've mentioned open mic and spoken word a number of times. How did you, how did you get put onto that? What, what was the, what was the trigger or set of triggers that got you to say, this speaks to me? Saul Williams. Mm. Saul Williams was word. Uh, my person. I used to watch Def Jam poetry and now people don't even <laughs> know what that poetry. is. Yeah. No one knows on. what that is. And <laughs> that, I know what it is. Come on, man. Some people Come don't on, know what dog. that is. And that really was the beginnings of many spoken word poetry. I saw Saul Williams, which is like phenomenal. He's way before his time. And these like new cats these days, generations, they, they don't know about him as much. And I'm like, yo, this is what I'm talking about. Don't let the market drive the culture when you can drive the culture yourself, you know, as a visionary, mm -hmm. right? He doesn't create uh, for market trends, right? He, right. He, he has his own vision and what sees and his authenticity leads through that. So I'm like, he hasn't, moving away from that at all right and the, that makes me sad that gen z or the culture has not like stuck with him he's big still right he's still making movies documentaries right. he's making music now as opposed to just poetry but he's still a big like culture critic in society and then my mm. homie i'll just tell you like yeah oh don't intend and then this black again back to you know pro-blackness and like black people yeah. in general like they just mm -hmm. One of the homies saw me and he's like, I don't have Asian, Amer Asian Americans or Filipinos in this, in this draw. We need to diversify. Like, we need to do this. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to put you on the mic, bro. And this, this guy named <laughs> Rome, uh, Baba Budans, he was like the, the culture broker of like Cincinnati area. He put me on as one of the last open mic people. Everyone's gone basically at the time. <laughs> so he was, was on like, the 3 a.m. shift. <laughs> I was on the 3 a.m. shift. I was like, I'm new to the game, so I'm going to try. And... Horrible poetry. I don't. I want. I don't want to recite my old poems. I think in this podcast I will recite something. But okay, um, okay, please one do. Of my old poems called "If I Was a Metaphysician." I remember it, and I was like trying to be like trying to sift what does metaphysician mean? You know, I'm trying to get into like just meta identity, like surrealism, trying to bring everything to the fore while there being like three people in the audience. Because um, <laughs> everyone's it's mad late. It's like two o'clock. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of two o'clock, and my friend. Matt Clenny, my roommate, he was like, he's a jazz, he was a jazz musician, 
time. He's like, yo, you need to be on there. I don't care. There's just three of us. You're going to go hard. Okay. So he supported me. Rome supported me. And uh, from there, those three people from the, the group of three people, it started spreading. Right. That was the beginnings. And I literally like, I just went in and I just did the poem. So that's how I got into po- spoken word poetry. I won't read Metaphysician because that is a horrible okay. poem. That is like my past <laughs> you life. You all, man, look, man, you, you got to have your work and you got to keep building on top of it. Like all Yo. the work is beautiful work eventually. But you know what I'm saying? Like you, you always get better. So I hear that. I'm going to read you really quick um, my Filipino because it's hella Filipino. You know what I'm saying? Bring it, and bring it, it bring is, it, bring this, it. It is, um, you know, questioning colonization, identity, all that kind of stuff. Mm. I'll read right now. Please. If you ask me if I'm fluent in Filipino, I would tell you. My Filipino is not my anchor, although leagues beneath me holding its breath. My Filipino breathes in half beats, a language of too many tongues and too many stories to untell. My Filipino mm. is Cavite and Pampanga. My Filipino is my mother and my father, both mm. tongues captains and both captives at the same shipwreck. I am a wreckage. I am a remix. My Filipino is mm. a long lost gift the forgotten rudder that pushes someone else's footprint starboard. In the 13th century, it was wrapped up and given a name by the Chinese called the Mai, country of the blacks. In the 16th century, it was wrapped up and given a truncated name after King Philip II, my motherland birthed by a son. Can't spell yourself out of Hispanic without the pronoun his and panicking without his and then intergenerational trauma. Can't seem to be given a name other than El Negrito or El Chinito to Hispanics. It's a term of endearment, the diminutive, another gift. Fast forward, my Filipino panics in the corner of Mr. Seibert's classroom. My Filipino is given a new name, Phil Am. Yet it knows that saying the Pledge of Allegiance is like double Dutch with two left feet, with no jump, and all rope, and always sinking. Might as mm. well be Filipino aftermath. After so many iterations, a name loses its North Star and a people lose directions to freedom and people lose a galaxy. If you ask me if I'm fluent in Filipino, all I remember is Nakalimutan. What's left Ah. of a ghost, of a ghost, of a ghost, of a ghost, of a ghost? What happens to a host? Does language commandeer itself into double erasure? Can phantom limbs speak themselves back into? Can phantom limbs speak themselves back? Can phantom limbs speak themselves? Can phantom limbs speak? Can phantom limbs, can phantom, or are we just phantoms? God damn. Tony, what, when are we putting you on wax? Come on, stop. When are we putting you on wax? Let's let slender breathe a little bit, bro. Ooh. That's like, that's one of my poems that I like, I love to come back to. And, and the funny mm. thing is, I wrote that a while back, but poetry is iterative, right? And it comes along with who I am, the socializations that are bound to come, like up to this day, right? Father intersects that now too, like my ideas with colonialism, right? Even just some aspects of factual history that I used to have in it, but I had yeah. to correct because I had workshopped it with people, like that's not right, you know, like that information's not right. right. I had to take that out, so. That is a little bit of piece of me that I wanted to share with people. Well, obviously, so one of the many from here. (laughs) Yeah, no. Look, I have to say one of the many reasons I wanted to bring you on. It was very important for me in this first season to have a guest that I thought identified with how I see the world that was Filipino. Tony, you're that person. Like, like real talk. You're someone that I look at in the space. I go, if there's someone, I'm like, just in terms of. Not how you see the world from a social justice standpoint, but as a father, as an academic, as a bridge between cultures, as someone who like, man, I gotta, I, I gotta rip this. I've many a deaf poetry jam story just because <laughs> yes. I grew up in New York, 100%. went to New York in Poets Cafe, like oh probably God. multiple, multiple the mecca times. Of that, yep. Ooh. And I got to see a deaf poetry jam recording live. No man, way. Like, no, Tony, Common performed at it. Oh my god. If I tell you the way the crowd react when Common came on, because it was Common easily was yes. It was the grown and sexy crowd. And oh it was just goodness. like watching it. It was just like all of them. Oh, it's comedy. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I was like, I was looking at my wife, I was like, easy now. <laughs> easy now. <laughs> <It's common. laughs> but just the yeah. man, if there was an epitome of what I thought the culture felt like in a live performance. It was that deaf poetry jam recording to see your connection to open mic and, and and spoken word and to bring another dope 
Asian American spoken word artist who's the first I ever saw, and he's an NYU alum, is Bosia. Bosia! Oh my gosh! I said Saul Williams, but I should have also said Bosia, bro. Like, homie, uh, again, another level. And it is sad that I don't see him. I mean, again, like, he's opened gates for many of us to be who we are today. Mm -hmm. And seeing him on the stage is nuts. The fact that you saw him live, I am jealous. So, yeah. It's beautiful, man, to see all these artists do their thing, man. I found out he's both Filipino and I think another ethnicity too. But the fact that I saw that brother, I was like, you, you part Filipino too? Of course. I didn't know that. (laughs) He's part Filipino. Yes. Because I didn't didn't remember knowing. Oh, wow. That's good. I did not know that. It's in the the blood at some, yeah, yes. Oh, wow. So when you think about the I Am Filipino poem that you just wrote, how's it changed today? What would you add to that? Today. Oh yeah. Mm. How's it changed today? I would probably add, because this is a whole thing about, you know, there's a big point about double erasure, right? I end with like that little repeating anaphora of I'm using poetry terms, right? That yeah. <laughs> commandeer, you know, yourself. It does is it just phantom or just phantom, right? Like that mm. word, that sentence starts to erase itself in and of itself, right? I would like to see if there was a part two, like at one point, my son, he's still, he's about to be two right now, but I would okay. love to see my son at one point interpret that poem to see what he gets out of it as a mixed, a multiracial Filipino-Cuban person mm. in this world of Gen Z who's more socially conscious <laughs> than like our past generations and I see what they think of it. Is it still the same? If it's still the same feeling where something's awfully wrong, right? I'm doing something wrong and also like society at large has not shifted too much, right? Because I'm constantly exposing him to things that I was not exposed to as a child around Mm. colonialization, even at these like, just books, you know, just trying to talk about like anti-racist baby, right? Dr. Ibn Kenby, you know, Kendi. So I'm trying to weave that in. So I would do a part two, like with him interpreting it, maybe using, weaving Mm. my son in there. And then uh, there's just more ways that, you know, I had Filipino relation to the Chinese, the colonial, colonial big brothers, right? You know, the the whole history of the Philippines have been colonial football, right? Between, you know, the, the, the Chinese, the Spanish, you know, America, right? The U.S., uh, the Japanese. And I didn't really talk too much about American colonialism with it too. I didn't Mm. really talk about the Japanese and you know, Battle of Manila, I could weave in those narratives in there to kind of paint a bigger picture of the colonial project. It's a project, right? So yeah. that has filtered down all the way down to the Filipino identity where we just are not, with colonial mentality, not seeing ourselves as Filipino, right? And then what does it even yeah. mean to be Filipino when our name, the, just the language of and of itself, is still after King Philip, Philippine, right? So mm-hmm. it's can we ever escape it is a big question. Or are we just renaming it now, accepting that fact that the name's not going to change, but we're just redefining it um, in a different way? Well, there have been many a country around the world, right, that had its colonized name and went back. And if you think about in India, Bombay to Mumbai, you know, that's that's a right. that's a city, right? But there are countries, right, right Siam, right. going to Thailand. I mean, there's there's right. there's right. examples right. of right. it. Right. I mean, right. I think let's put it out in the universe that our motherland can reclaim its its ancestral belonging and name. How do we recapture that? Not just, you know, for the performative aspect of renaming the country, whatever it is, right? Because let's be clear, Tony, we know this American colonialism still lives back home. Oh, absolutely. Yep. And I want to tie that back to your own origin story of having your father involved in the military. Like, how would you, how do you weave, like contextualize everything you found out in your life about American colonialism, militarism, and the fact that it it brought your father to <laughs> into America. Yeah. So to just clean and like be clear about that, it's like yeah. not none of my parents even, there's a big chunk of us, none of our parents were actually in the military. It was like by way of my, my parent, my dad was not in the military, my mom was not. We were civilians. Uh, my dad, my mom was a civilian okay. working supervising commissaries right or like oh stories, so connected right? not in the middle but connected to connected and working to on guy yeah. yes it. okay thank you and my father was working as like a radio 
another thing. <laughs> He's doing like his own thing, non-degree, but finding a way to make a life out of his non-degree lived experience, right? Like just badass. I, I really respect that both. Just to answer your question around like the family getting there, like how do I make sense of all of that? Yeah, yeah. I go back to right the Colonial Project, weaving down a colonial mentality, which is like internalized, you know how people talk about internalized racialized oppression? It's like internalized colonial oppression where you can't even, like, you're doing things and you can't even name it. You don't understand why that's the case. And it's, like, supporting the colonial project, right? For example, like, whiteness for 100%, like, supporting whiteness, supporting the military-industrial complex, right? We know, I, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, talk bad, negative about, like, my family members who are also in my brothers and sisters, my, fa- my friends, who are also in the military, right, doing their service and whatnot, Yep. But the project is what I want people to get out of it. And the project is like a whole system that churns out and brings in black and brown people to fill these roles mm-hmm. and to put the pers- their lives on the line, right? Yeah. For the sake, for the narrative of um, nationalism, U.S. nationalism, without knowing, you know, this is the colonial mentality, th- that's, that's antithetical to, you know, doing this against your own people. You know what I mean? So yeah. you're doing this against your own body as a, as a politic. So like, yeah, we think about whiteness. I go back when I, when I went to the Philippines the first time, you know, I see doves whitening soap everywhere, right? My cousins mm. are going to get their skin whitening as a natural thing, normal whitening Man. thing. I was like, whoa, that's a thing. Okay, yeah. do that, right? And just different levels of people treating everyone through colorism. Like, yeah, I'm darker skin, but you know, lighter skin, mestizos, mestizos, like out there get treated like, royalty white people <laughs> forget about it you all are famous no matter who you are no matter right. how pretty you are how ugly you are you are treated the same with royalty okay because that whiteness mm-hmm. is so powerful mm-hmm. in the philippines and then another colonial project just like type of jobs that people are like pushing our families into like are only in like engineer science all the kind of stuff or <laughs> you know things that i'm not Word. Mm-hmm. I don't think we both got into, you know, I think the closest thing that my parents wanted me to do in regards to that colonial project and the American dream, which I do not endorse, is like engineer or architecture, but which I was like not fly with me. Like I was definitely a writer, a storyteller at an early age and I I just couldn't do it. I can't fake the funk and we shouldn't have to and we should allow plurality for ourselves, right? But the Mm -hmm. American colonial project with the military and all that kind of stuff will shrink that, will shrink imagination. And um, arguably, like, Filipinos, Asian-Americans, just people in general, people of color are battling um, their own imagination gaps of, like, who we can be, we are destined to be. And that's why I think you'll see a rift between, interfighting between us, too. Like, not Mm -hmm. us agreeing, right? You'll be like, oh, are you for Black Lives Matter? Or are you against it? What? All Lives Matter? There's Filipino All Lives Matter? Yes, there are. Because yeah. the colonial American colonial project is so strong to squash collective liberation that, you know, everyone right now, our, our role, I would say arguing our role for Filipinos and Americans is to Asian Americans is to stay critical, stay low, do your local work to change. And we both know change takes so much time yeah. to shift ideology, mindsets, beliefs, then the habits, and then to you know, systems from there, right? So I'll leave it at that. There's so much more to be said about that project, but I just wanted to answer how family, the socialization shift us all the way to how I kind of see that project. Well, Tony, speaking of change, I'd be remiss not to bring your current academic work, the book that you're working on into the forefront as one of the few Filipinos that I personally know that's getting their doctorate. I had to shout that out because when we look at the percentages in this aggregate, you know, Asian American data, there's not a lot of us that get a doctorate. Let's be clear, right? So I just wanted to shout out your hard work, I all the amazing that, people that are doing it for you and supporting you for you to, uh, to do your work. So I'm going to put you on the mic and talk about what you're doing today around the change you're trying to, to build towards. Right. I think earlier before I said I moved from like the youth spoken word space to Asian American activism. Right. Yeah. So let me just give some context. I started ethnic studies courses. I think my first one was at Harvard GSC under Dr. Christina Villarreal. Shout out Mm. to the homie V. She's been critical to my development to this point. 
first time I could ever see myself written into the curriculum, right? Specifically Filipinos, right? Mm. In the in the in the in the sense of activism. Like we were a part of the fight for ethnic studies. Fast forward to now, like in between, I've been doing so much like organizing around ethnic studies and Asian Americans and whatnot because it's been super critical. I found my voice in the community and people just the community's been so warm and so you know, Asian American collectivism versus individualism, I felt collectivism. Like all throughout mm. the journey, people have been propping me up. And mostly it has been Asian American women and queer trans folks. Mm. Yeah. So let me just name that. There's a lot to be done with Asian American male or cis men around Ooh. social political identity. And Tony. that is another topic. Yeah, that's another right? podcast. That's a episode. whole pod. Man. That's a whole topic because there's not enough of us, Ron. Yeah. that are saying that and we're not and there's not enough of us educating each other to get to the point right anyways i'm now a phd student at in the education leadership and policy analysis program at uw madison wisconsin and my focus is on ethnic studies policy meets practice specifically focusing on how do we strengthen the asian uh, the the ethno racial literacy that's a fancy term i can unpack ethno racial literacy of <laughs> Uh, regarding Asian American narratives to people who are not Asian American, right, in this country, especially amidst the Stop Asian Hate movement. That's my big question, my big obsession right now. I'm like, how do mm. we do that at a, a large scale? Yeah. You know, because people are dying out here. People are getting burnt, our elders, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. people are getting hit, attacked, even when it started in 2020. Up to this point, three years later, people are still getting attacked and the media. You know how the media gets obsessed with like waves. You know, it, there was a lot of wave and energy around it in 2020, 2021. I feel it dissipating. I feel yeah. it like, mm-hmm. oh, wait, when's that? Oh, the data is the data and the numbers on stop Asian hate is Asian hate is still rising. Wow, but it's not published right now. Wow. But I will say that there is a movement, another tide, a tide of Asian American education policy moving across the nation, which is yes. very dope. And that's where like, my research is focused. I track the bills. Essentially, I track the life cycle. Let's say the life cycle of like where Asian American policy and education is about to be developed through coalition all the way to the Senate and House level, all the way to the pedagogical level to students. And that is an emergent field, right? There's still a lot of sense-making right now happening. And um, I I predict it's going to have a long life cycle and also impact the uh, external, not just the Asian American community, but other ethnic studies communities. But it started off in Chicago or Illinois with the Teach Act, right? Yeah. Which mandates Asian American studies or history to be, well, studies and history are different, history to be taught in all K-12 schools, right? It's a very ambitious goal supported by so many things. I think even the MacArthur Foundation, the Taft Foundation, right? Are funding money, like a million dollar budget to put this into place, which I argue is not enough. Oh, all schools, absolutely, yes. Illinois, a million dollars is nothing to me. Anyways, that's neither here nor there. It influenced other states, which is uh, New Jersey. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. You, you, New Jersey. You know what I'm saying? Make Rana, us visible, New Jersey. Got shout out New Jersey, those folks. Connecticut, yeah. New York is on now. Florida's trying to get it passed, and in Wisconsin, we're doing our own thing. So it has shifted. It's, to me, a, a micro-revolution happening around Asian-American education policy. So that's what I study. Now, that's part one. Part two is I'm writing this book with Josie Bass, right? Uh, and Wiley called Teaching the Invisible Race, Embodying mm. a Pro-Asian-American Lens in Schools. Why? Ooh. And how do I connect that to my research? Here's what. I think this is going to be, you know, I'm still learning because I'm a new researcher, but I think design, by design-based research, this book is going to be a tool for me to help districts, states, communities translate that policy into practice. Because my prediction is that, cool, policy gets passed. Amazing, symbolic win. What's up? What's good? You know, I'm so happy we're celebrating. And then when it comes down to the nitty gritty nuts and bolts, (laughs) I've been in schools as an instructional coach. Yeah. You know, I worked with Teach for America, working in Miami-Dade and in, in Massachusetts. And I know when policies are set, they're so distant from the actual impact, right? And there's so many yeah. barriers to jump over. And unless you're in the nitty gritty and know those processes, know the gap, then it's not going to reach the ground. 
So that's why I created this book. I want the work to reach the ground and I want people to take on a pro-Asian American lens rooted in pro-Blackness. Done. That's like my part two of that. Mm. God, I, boy, we, where do we go? So you, you've said the term pro-Blackness a number of times and let, let's call something out to the forefront that I think many people in our community struggle with, right? Which is this idea of how I would say particular communities, individual experiences of Asian Americans have felt around Black folks in America, right? Have you come to this notion of understanding that our pro-Asian Americanness is tied to pro-Blackness? Mm-hmm. How would you articulate that for, for our people? Because I would say that's something our people, even in circles I run in, I don't think have the way that you and I live in our bones because of the multiracial, like multi-experienced ways, I think understanding our bones and we're still learning. Can you articulate that a bit more for the audience? Yeah, I'll do it from a personal and a uh, just a logical standpoint, right? Yeah. Personal standpoint, boom. Filipinos, Americans, <laughs> Filipinos, dude, we're rooted, again, we're rooted. My, I, like my blood is in Pampanga too. That's part of my, bu- my blood. That's my father's side. And mm-hmm. back then, the Ayetas are black, yo. Like, so my blood is black. Like, even though you don't see it phenotypically in my, my, my body, my blood is from blackness, right? So straight up, mm-hmm. just honoring that legacy and honoring that my, our people. Okay. One, that's personal. Right. And I have family in my family who are straight Blasian, you know, black Apino. So I think about them all the time in this work. Those are my personal things. Part two, the logical standpoint, ethnic studies movement, where we are with my research, Asian American ethnic studies policy would not be true. This whole movement would not be true without the black power movement. It would be foolish. It would be racist and anti-black to say that we just focus on Asian American stuff because that's what we're here to do, right? Without knowing that the foundation to which you exist is founded upon people who are fighting for you, right? Way back, right? The Black uh, Black Power Movement right? The civil rights movement, that infrastructure helped us, right? Helped us move the ethnic studies fight, right? When they're fighting in SF, right? San San Francisco State University in Berkeley, like fighting for ethnic studies, right? It was a multi-racial, multi-ethnic coalition of student groups fighting for the first ethnic studies courses, right? Then that bloomed into these, and that's higher ed, right? That bloomed all the way down to K-12. And you can't ignore that history, that political history that we were bound together already, right? So that's just a logical standpoint. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to like weave or put my opinion on it. That's just a logical standpoint because we were born and bred out of pro-Blackness already, right? See, that's the thing, Tony. I don't know how many of our people know that history and which is why it's so important because I was part of the movement at NYU to bring what became APA studies into mm-hmm. NYU in the mid nineties, right? And that of in itself is a That's really amazing. fascinating topic, right? To how that came to be. And then 25 years later, there's a program and institute that stands on its own that's doing amazing work, right? And I think the question I always had was, why did I have to learn this in college? Why couldn't I learn this in K-12 and to see how the 100%. movement, you know, has started to proliferate. So it's not just something you have to wait until college to learn, but it should be a through line from the very moment you enter school, public school, you know, or school generally, right? To be able to pick these things up is like, do do you have any like sense from your research of like, aside from, you know, the anti-Asian violence that's happened, were there other triggers that got, you know, the, the beginning of this coalition to bring Asian American studies and history into K-12 from your research? Or was, yeah. would you say that was the major trigger? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it was the major trigger. Like, that was the major trigger because I'm looking at data around, um, you know, some organizations, community orgs, and orgs that study the data of the movement and tracking it. Like, Stop AAPI Hate is one org, and the status index under TAF mm-hmm. is, like, two metrics. When they're, like, um, API Hate, they have, like, a report card and status index Basically, we're like reporting on how many, I mean, like hate crimes were happening, right? 
And from there, after they did the report, obviously there's like a like wave, like 11,000 plus, right? And then you can think about the underreported, right? The response that they also surveyed the community as a way to combat that, there was a couple of things that came out. And I just like, you know, I'm trying to get this brief published in Wisconsin because it outlines the national context going to Wisconsin, right? Because Wisconsin okay. has its own fight. And I'm, I'm looking at this. Uh, yeah, this is from the Stop 2022 Stop AAPI Hate Report Card. And the top two community responses or wants was education and community engagement, right? And then mm. civil rights legislation. But the top two were education and community engagement. So I was like, I think that's what drove a lot of this. The narrative around and like why people you'll start seeing at week, you start seeing in different like in media in general, like why there's so much energy around education because a lot of money is being like, there's a lot of stake there because the community said so. And I'll think more about like, if there's anything more from that right now, but to me, primarily from the research standpoint, this is what's driving it right now. Like the community wanted it as a solution. Well, Tony, I want to come bring back into the circle. And we talked this before we got on the mic, fatherhood. You are the father of a two-year-old Filipino Cuban boy. So let's bring fatherhood into this oh space, God, man. Yes. What, what, yes. What, what's fatherhood for you right now? Oh, fatherhood is my first identity. Uh, my first father, being a father is my first identity right now. Um, because both it's in the body and it, it just transforms you every day. So I'm like seeing this, like he is almost two, right? May 27th, he's going to be two. And he's learned so much in such a short amount of time. Every day I'm like tracking words. I'm like, you just said baby. You just said fix it. You just said <laughs> you're copying all the things I shouldn't be saying right now. You are You are so smart right now. And, you know, my friend was like, oh, can we, do we need to, do we need to take out the explicit words of this song that we're listening to in the background? I'm like, we probably should. He's absorbing everything, <laughs> you know, everything. Um, uh, and I'm like, wow, this is phenomenal. And, you know, like everyone, every parent goes through that uh, process because you start seeing that. But I think he's changed me so much around how I see time, how I see values, everything. I don't have time for everything, right? I would say, arguably, I have time for you in this because you're a brother. You know, my weekends are you. for Thank family. You. you know what I mean? Thank you. And that has been tough. but. Like for rare occasions, I will do a weekend thing. But again, I, I used to use my weekends for work, 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 work. And again, mm. I'm learning that capitalism within my body that yes. my, my mom and my parents have learned, right? As a trauma response, I'm unlearning that. I don't want to impart that to my son. So mm. saving that time is one way of doing that, right? Mm. So how I view work in general is work to help my family thrive and help. He is my legacy, Right. We think about legacy projects. I'm from like um, this Filipino young leaders organization tied with the Philippine embassy. And we had to do a legacy project. And I was just laughing because one of my homies at the time I was doing it, I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't have Sebastian, my son, but he had his own son. And he would just joke around like, my legacy is my son. And then, you know, all of us would laugh, you know, but he was yeah. for real about it. Like yeah. he was for real about it. And now I understand I'm for real about this. My legacy is my son. He's part of my legacy. And He's going to be carrying a torch. You know, I don't want to put that burden on him, but he will also at the same time. Be he ain't he ain't be going to McKenzie or Bain consulting, you know, trying to like do that. I want him to understand himself first. Well, if he decides that, I hope he does it in a, a you know equitable sector, you know, <laughs> the four mm-hmm. people power movement sector. But I want him to know all this history that we just talked about on this podcast. I want him to know that also he can change his pronouns. Like I'm giving him him. He, but our our history from the Bible, by Bailans, right, is a queer and trans and feminist community in the Philippines, right? To teach him about that community in the Philippines, that mm-hmm. our chieftains were leaders that were women and queer and trans folks. Yeah. Are that now today? And he has to choose his gender at some point. You know, I, I'm, it's hard right now as a father and being in this level with daycare, with a doctor, and I'm like everything. And then like, Close. So I told him he's he they right now. He's gonna choose that later on, right? Mm-hmm. To me, fatherhood is so important to shape that because he's gonna see a world in a less binary lens than I did. And I think that in and of itself is a testament to all the education, the political education that brought like that shaped me and shaped who I am today. Boy, we can have another podcast episode talking about 
you said how we as Asian American cishet males need to do our own work. Oh my gosh. Especially yeah. understanding the the legacy and foundation of queer, trans, female leaders. I mean, if I think about it on a personal level, I would not be anywhere without my mom and my two sisters. Mm-hmm. Right. My dad is dope. May he rest in peace. My mom was the foundation of our family. If I think about many of the Philippine stories I know about, is and, and I remember seeing these things in, you know, barrio fiestas or, or Filipino cultural nights, right? It was always about the mom being the center of the family. Always. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and in colonialism and white supremacy, that gets tampered down and pushed down. Those stories don't get elevated nearly enough. So Tony, we, I, I would love to talk to you offline how we bring those things back to the forefront because I think it's going to be really important for our people's healing, frankly, um, and for us to continue these social justice movements. 100%. That needs to be talked about. Asian women are like tired too, being the only ones in our community doing it and Asian trans folks and queer folks are tired of doing it. So we, we need to take up our torch. We need to do it and bring more men, cis head men into the fold. And I'm doing it, you know, you know, you, you put me on to Asian American 10, right? NYC, working in NYC. So I, I have to shout you out for putting me on, being the connector hey. that you are. You got me my job that I'm doing <laughs> and I'm I was transitioning out of because it's been three years yeah. in the fold where I get to educate men, uh, Asian American teachers in New York of how to do this, right? Mm. And a lot of them, there's resistance. It's called Asian American, NYC Men Teach, Asian American Teaching Empowerment Network and Development Initiative, right? AA10. And part of the role is racial literacy. Racial literacy is understanding race and racism, right? But there was resistance from many of the participants in the program. And like, we need to just focus on practice, our practice and our leadership. And especially today, you can't take leadership out of the DEI and racial literacy and race and racism. Right. You can't. That'd be, mm-hmm. that'd be colorblind, not colorblind, color evasive yes. leadership. And I don't want, that's not, that's not what I'm trying to teach you all. So there is resistance within that, and that is the start. So this is all to say that it's going to be a hard journey for us to do. And I think the best way is to do it, these programs, like foster it with community, because I feel like there's a there's a magic that happens when we're in community and then men see each other, have that light bulb moment like, whoa, oh, yo, you're right. And they they hold each other accountable as opposed to always me being the person to be like, yeah, yeah. you're wrong. This is wrong. Mm. You know, like another person who was like... <laughs> You know, we'll say like, yo, have you ever thought about it this way? I'm like, oh, wow, you're using your coaching techniques. I love that. Put it on them. I'll, mm. Go in, go in. You, you, let me step back. I can't wait to see that happen more at scale. So tying this together towards the Ed Week article that I tagged you in on LinkedIn, this seems to be the first time I've ever seen a major Ed publication talk about this question. Why are there so few of us in K-12 education? And considering the continued population boom of Asian Pacific Islander Americans in this country and the fact that there's so few of us and the work that you're leading with Richard Haynes in New York City. So let me let me give the asterisk of that. Richard asked me, he's like, Rob, would you be interested in doing that? I was like, that is out of my field. Thank you for even thinking. It would be like, Hi. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I was like, but you know who I could put you on to who could do this in his fucking sleep? So Tony <laughs> Librosa. Y'all should figure that out. My make man. it happen. So I just feel really blessed that you took that opportunity on or doing it for the, the school district that, that I'm a product of in, in, in New York City. So thank you for doing that work. Yo, for sure. So to elevate that, like a program like AA10 can be you know, one of the solutions to that, but what would you say from your own lived experience and what you're seeing in your research? How do we get more of us into K-12 education, Tony? Because it seems to be something that there's no true national conversation that I'm watching. It no. is being done with. I mean, it, it's so, it, it's, it's multi-pronged for sure. We have to think of the system, the structure, and then the individual lived experience level, right? The structural level, like you said, there is an infrastructure to recruit us like there, there is this emergent. The fact that there's it's still emergent for black male educators. Like there's there's a whole recruitment pipeline of that. That's still emergent, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So there, right now, there, I'm seeing a lot of movements around one million recruiting. You know, I just went and talked at South by Southwest, yeah, uh, and in TNCP, yeah, and Latinos for Education and other coalitions with that 
are fighting to get 1 million educators of color into the system. And I just also saw that in juxtaposition with Dr. Bettina Love, who's an abolitionist, right? Writing, mm-hmm. don't, re- don't recruit us if you're not about to retain us, right? Ooh. Boom. So at that level flat, right? Stop it. Stop that. If you don't have, and you haven't thought of the grand scale of the life cycle, we talk about the life cycle of things. Like if you're going to recruit us, you better be with us the entire way. If you're with us, you're with us throughout, right? From entry to exit. Hopefully not the exit. You know what I mean? Hopefully there's no right. exit. You know, we don't need to exit. Entry to ascension is what I want to say, right? So that's another point. It's like, is there areas for us to grow in leadership in the education scene? Like AA10, I'm helping. One part of it is to build a leadership pipeline and expose my men to those opportunities. They don't know about the test. Some of them don't. Some of them are. Actually, some of them are like brimming administrators. They want, they got their license. Now they're just trying to figure out what's next for them, but they're not finding that at their building and they're not finding that underneath their leadership. Like, you know, if 80% of the teaching force is white women, right? Mm -hmm. And then leadership is white, right? Like, I'm sure like you go up, I haven't looked at the data in a minute, but we, we all know like leadership at that level is mostly white, right? Either white male or white women. And to me, I'm like, what is their incentive? I don't want to say incentive. What is their responsibility and what are they do, taking the responsibility to look at the diversity and look at the statistic? We just look at New York. There's a lot of Asian American students, right? Falling off the train, especially Asian, Asian American students who are male, right? Who are low income, right? Who are erased in throughout the process, who have disciplinary issues because no one is, to my argument, is no one's thinking about them at all in a nuanced way. So, Mm. One, we need to start creating programs like this too, but that's just like a, my program is a band-aid to a larger issue, right? Right. It's absolutely that. And I want people to learn from it for sure. But really we do need to think about like how, like what type of funding is there for like the public education system or small things too, like affinity spaces, affinity ERGs to make us feel the sense of belonging and inclusion and to feel like we're going to be taken care of in leader as leadership pipelines are um, to be built, right? I've seen programs where they put money for that specific. I mean, I'm I'm so glad NYC Men Teach put money puts money for Asian American male teachers. People right. are asking, what about women? And I'm like, you're right. That's a big that's a big thing. But I would argue back, like NYC Men Teach in a feminist labor market, right? Which is another thing. That's a, that's another tension that that we we can go deeper into in another podcast. But right, there's not a not there's not a lot of Asian men, but there's a lot of Asian American male students. Right. And by the research, go back to research, ethno-racial, and I would say gender matching, we see black male educators changing the lives of black male students yep. over a course of their life cycle in there's like one year, two years in K-12 education. I'm talking about discipline rates. I'm talking about access to high school diplomas. I'm talking about college access. We should be doing that same thing for Asian American men. Mm who are in places like New York, right? Where there's more of that issue, right? And then obviously make your uh, distinction per state, per region, right? We have to think about it that nuancedly. So yes, we we do need more programming like A10 and you know the new teacher projects doing 1 million teachers of color, but we need to think about it in a more nuanced way, the whole life cycle and all levels. And it's gonna, be, it's gonna require a lot more funding <laughs> so, as yeah. always. I mean, to put it out into the space, I I just came from the educator leaders of color convening in Vegas. And as you know, Tony, there's a collective of us that have been running in parallel, but also overlapping with our Edlock community of APIA K-12 education leaders, which you and I are a part of, right? And I think there has been, the group has grown really organically. We take a lot of the notions of Adrian Marie Brown's emergent strategy as of the way that we're collecting. And here's the end. I think you can coexist with that and say, we look at our friends who are Latino for education, right? We look at our our black folks that are in, in education, right? And inform collectives, right? And there's this notion that it feels like we're starting to get there, if not already there, for us to create our own thing for Asian Americans for education. I, I, it feels like we're there. I will talk to you offline. 
who I think is the person I'm already, we're planning the seed for to lead that entity. I don't want to promote this person's yeah. currently employed somewhere, but yeah, I think dope. it's one of those about time because I this groundswell, we got to take advantage of there being this wave, not only of money, but of attention for us to be able to say, because the thing is, Tony, if we don't coalesce around these things, 10 years from now, it's like, oh, we're going to be talking about the same thing. It's just like, it's going to take a ground, like taking advantage of this groundswell now and saying with TAP and all all this attention of like, we just need to form this policy and advocacy initiative. Right. Nonprofit. Like we need to, like, it needs to happen. It's just, you know, trying to plant some of my own seeds with some of the people I I know these entities to be like, let's, we just need to make it happen. And that's not to say the collective that we're part of can't exist in community and in parallel too, because I think there's a lot of power to be able to say, let's also have a loose collective that's affiliated with, but kind of is his own thing. Because I think there's a lot of power to be able to say, we don't have to wait to be inside of an entity to be able to do work, right? Exactly. You know, exactly. like how do we do both? Because I think we're trying to yes. take learnings from how we've seen other movements coalesce, where it's like you get subsumed by the thing and you're in too much structure, you then you can't innovate you can't be responsive to what the community wants, right? Also, so, you it restrains, like you said, it restrains you because when you're so, when you're in an aggregate community, a multiracial, yeah. multi-coalitional mo- movement, the priority is of that of the members and how many members there are. And you think about the past legacy of those previous groups. And I would, I'm going to just straight up say, most of them have like lived in a black and white binary. Oh, yeah. Which we have to say, we have to name saying, you know, blackness is the thing we talk about in reference to whiteness and white supremacy. And then slowly, like we saw it with Latino, Latine, Latinx folks coming into the fold slowly and then Asian American coming into the fold. But it's still at this level where it's still like black, Latino and white reference. And I'm like, yo, we need to expand it so Bruh. much more. <laughs> like Speak what truth. is going on? What is going on? Are we... Research have, has been out there. I think studies was just right, like gave birth to a lot of this stuff. So like, how are we, I'm just blown out that like, we're still just saying like, there's only enough food at the table for a few folks. And that is still happening. But mm-hmm. I, my hope is that I, I've seen a lot of Black and Latin, Latinx coalitions uh, shifting. I've seen it. Yes. To saying, I'm fighting for Asian Americans and saying there's brown Asian Americans, black Asian Americans, and just complicating the entire process and being like, yo, 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 we brought ourselves up now, we need to help out, you know, we need to move forward together, right? And that makes me very hopeful because in the past, I know we had this conversation that that wasn't always the case and it felt like we had to be separatist. Yeah, it's frankly why I have stuck with and continue to be not only hopeful, but very optimistic about Edlock. Yes. I want to shout out to people, Lila Avila, may she rest in peace, but particularly Sharonda Bossier for putting her own neck out to say that we as Asian Americans are as important part of the coalition of Edlock as other members, right? And Stamp. particularly yep. a session was held about 38 The Garden talking about Ooh. the beautiful doc about Jeremy Lin when he dropped 38 points on my boy Kobe in the garden. <gasps> Oh my goodness. And about disrupting stereotypes about Asian Americans, the fact that we were on stage for us to be talked about was just, it's beautiful, man. And we also know that in multiracial coalition work, part of what we know we have to talk about, this is intuitive for you, intuitive for me, but I think it's about creating, how do we create the spaces, the platforms, the facilitation for us to talk about what one of my friends, may I shout out my friend, Ali Myatt, about family business. There are things we need to be talking about, about the tensions we have about multiracial coalition, of which there's a ton. We just need to be in conversation about it. The black, white binary, the black, Latinx, you know, white binary, binary, right? And why have we as Asian Americans been double erased and how do we bring, get back into the fold and also talk about the tensions we've had in our own community, right? Because people will put it on us and I think rightfully so around, y'all been living anti-blackness. I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there are many of us that are trying to also at the same time, 
dismantle that and go into a pro-blackness lens and vision for our own community, right? Like, both many things can be Happen true at the, the same, same time. time. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Like, the whole thing that, like, you only mm-hmm. can be one or the other is the one of the most destructive things in our life. A product right? of white supremacy, Bingo. 100%, that they want us to stay divided and conquered. And let's leave it at that because, you know, even you just saying that, saying that we've, there's this idea of, like, a white adjacency that we didn't name, but I'm naming it, right? Are Asians white? Oh my goodness, this is killing me that I haven't had to say that word, right? But <sighs> because of the <laughs> internalized racial oppression, yeah. in, in terms because of you know colonial mentality, we've seen that happen. But that's not to say that the Black community and the Latinx community and the Arab community and the other communities have not experienced that, are not experiencing that today. To just to say that that's the, just an Asian issue is false. It's just logically false. And just talking swaths, right? Broad strokes when that's damaging, broad stock narratives that is damaging to what we need to be true because we we have been out there. It's just like, are you opening up the table for us to be there to show and bring more people to the fold? And be like, no, 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 no. This is a pro-black, pro-brown, pro-indigenous Asian American group. I know who they are. It's not like they just appeared out of nowhere. You know what I mean? They've been doing right. work on the ground for a long time. It's just now these these bigger foundations and these bigger networks are opening the doors for them to be a part of it. Yeah. And folks, and Tony, it's going to take folks like you and I, many others that are not on this call to continue to push that movement, right? So I just mm-hmm. wanted to, to to thank you for being on this yes, and to end our time. I got to ask it because what's the title of this podcast? It's Fronderings. Bade, what is your rendering for the audience? What do you want to leave our audience away with? Oh, yo, I think this, I'll come back to the Filipino ancestral wisdom of Isang Bagsak. You know me. That's like my word, my energy, my core value. I want you to all embody Isang Bagsak. Say with me, Isang Bagsak. Isang Bagsak. Yes, it means we all fall, we all rise together. And it really embodies cross-racial, cross-ethno-racial coalition building as a core value, as a way of being. And we need to take that everywhere at all levels, from system to policy to program development. So thank you again, Ron, for having me on there to talk about Isang Baksak. I'm excited to be the final person on the podcast. This is kind of cool. Word. And I'm going to do something that I got feedback on since I've had a number of these podcasts out before we bid each other do. Tony, how do people find you? I want to give you the opportunity oh, to yes. say some of your social media handles so people can find you. Please. Um, okay. All right. So you can find me in social, uh, Twitter and IG. That's all I use because I'm a parent now. At Tony Rosa Speaks. At Tony Rosa Speaks on IG and on Twitter. Currently right now for a Community Unsung AAPI Hero Award at TAF um, as a finalist. So I need Damn. to go vote for the finals. I mean, there's so many dope orgs, and I hope more people get, multiple people get selected as, because there's nine of us. I hope from the collective mindset, we get chosen as a group, like multiple of us, but there's nine finalists right now. I'm one of the finalists, and I'm hoping something comes out of it. Something comes out of it. Well, let me let 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 me through this podcast spread the word about you being one of the nine finals. Please send me that info after this, so when we put you on blast on this, um, we can get it out to the masses, Tony. All right, fam. Thank you so much, Maraming Salamat. Of course. Ah, uh, walang man, Tony. It has been a pleasure. Rondering's audience, this is the last episode, and trust and believe, more seasons are to come. Peace out, folks. Wow. I got to say, Tony, you drop gems and wisdom to our audience. Hearing about the totality of your story and what you're doing, particularly for our Asian American community, our Filipino community, and the beautiful phrase that you are using that comes from Filipino American activism. Isang Baksa. If one falls, we all fall. You realize, I realize, and many of us realize that our fates as people are tied to the fates of all people. And particularly what you have been saying over and over again, bringing a pro-Asian American lens with a pro-Blackness lens. Thank you for sharing that story. 
and Rondering's fam. There are going to be more episodes to come, so this won't be the last you'll be hearing from me and the beautiful guests I'll be bringing on board in the future. Peace. <laughs>